thanks for uh, reading that Bible reading to us. Very familiar passage. It's one of the very few passages. I remember hearing that as a child, that the passage of the prodigal son. And it's a passage that still gets me today. Every time I hear it the same way, uh, I just get very confused about who I'm meant to relate to in that story. But uh, as we come to God's word tonight, um, let's come before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word so clearly teaches us who you are uh, in all your glory. And uh, Lord God, in light of that truth, it teaches us what you want from your followers. And Lord, this passage in uh, Luke chapter 15 is no exception. So Lord, tonight I pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict our hearts of those things that need convicting, that you would transform our minds, that you would make us more like Jesus. For I pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, back in 2011, I was pastor at Kaima Baptist Church, but I had to do some research in the States. And so I did a pastor's exchange with a pastor in San Jose, California. He came and led my church in Kaima and I led his church for a few months in San Jose. And then I was traveling all around the States to do this research. I was interviewing pastors and doing focus groups amongst uh, different groups, uh, different church groups. And uh, one of those groups was in West Harlem in New York. So my family and I jumped on a plane from San Francisco and flew to uh, New York City. And uh, at that point, Google had just released Google Chrome. And so they had a bit of an offer going that we could borrow laptops and have free internet for the six hours we were on the flight. And of course, we all said yes. Myself, my wife and my daughter all said yes, please. And as we sat down on the plane, my daughter opened up her laptop and turned it on. And then she proceeded to touch the screen. And she started to complain, Dad, my laptop's not working. You see, up until that point, she'd only ever used my iPad. It's crazy to think, friends, that there are people in our world today, many of you here sitting here tonight, that don't know life without things like a microwave oven, that don't know life without a personal computer, that don't know life without the internet, that don't know life without touchscreen technology. Let me assure you, there was a time when none of those things existed. Our life, our, our world is changing rapidly. In my lifetime, things have shifted in amazingly quick ways. Just take information technology, for example. Uh, in the last 20 years, we've seen huge, huge shifts in how we live our lives. 20 years ago, 1998, that was the original Google logo, by the way. That's just not me trying to replicate Google. That was the original Google logo. 1998, Google was launched. Now, if my daughter came to me, my 11-year-old daughter came to me and said, Dad, who's the seventh Prime Minister of Australia? How, what would I respond? I'd either be, uh, you know, really up on my Australian history, which I'm not. So I would say, I don't know, go... Go Google it. Friends, that term wasn't around 20 years ago. It probably wasn't around 10 years ago. Google was only launched in 1998. In 2000, uh, the Nokia 3310 is. Some of you are probably thinking, what's Nokia? <laughs> Let me tell you, the Nokia 3310 was my generation's iPhone. Everyone had one. Everyone had one. Uh, I, I was surprised it was so late, to be honest. I thought the Nokia 3310 came out sometime in the 90s, but apparently not. Apparently in 2000. 
The Apple iPhone was only launched just over 10 years ago in 2007. Now, I know there's going to be tech nerds here tonight that will tell me, no, 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 there were smartphones before the iPhone. I know there were smartphones before the iPhone. But the iPhone was really the first phone that lots of us had. It was the first smartphone that lots of us have. All of a sudden, lots of us had a computer in our hand. That was a game changer, friends. That was a huge game changer that lots of us had a computer in our hands. They tell me, this computer I have in my hands right now is more powerful than the computer that sent a man to the moon. That's just mind-boggling, isn't it? That all the information I could ever need or want is in my hands right now because of a mobile phone. That only really shifted in 2007. And then uh, in 2016, and I don't know why, but uh, the logo's been flipped around for some reason, but in 2016, Tesla uh, released its Powerwall, a battery that apparently, uh, people who know these things better than I do, will revolutionise how we store energy and will actually make the electric car much more viable, will make solar electricity much more viable, or at least when the battery becomes a lot cheaper than it is right now. We have seen amazing shift in technology over the last 20 years. Anyone who's been about my age or older will just be shaking their heads about how our world has changed over the last 20 years. Uh, but it's not only technology. The way our society views itself has shifted amazingly in, in huge amazing leaps over the last 20 years with the rise of feminism and the rise of the LBGTI uh, rights and the same-sex marriage legislation that went through Parliament last year again shifts our views as a society and as a community to what makes a legitimate uh, relationship what makes a legitimate family what makes a legitimate marriage how we view our world. Uh, 50 years ago, the majority of people in Australia would have had one narrative, and that narrative would have been the Judo-Christian narrative. Well, that's not the case anymore. We live in a world of great diversity, of multiculturalism, when, where any truth goes. You know, what might be true for me is not true for you. What's true for you may not be true for me. We've shifted from modernity to post-modernity. In fact, I think we've shifted through post-modernity and we're coming into a new era. And that era is that my truth is only validated if I can destroy your truth. With the social media and the 24-hour news cycle, I can only validate my truth by destroying your truth. And people are coming after us, aren't they? They're coming after the church. They're coming after the Bible. They're coming after what we believe in. We shouldn't be surprised by that because we are moving into a new era. Like I said where I can only validate my truth if I can destroy your truth. If post-modernity was about live and let live, then the new era we're in is live and let die. I'm going to kill your point of view so my point of view can live. And all this has had serious repercussions for the church in the West. The church was once in the centre of our society and its moral compass and it's no longer that way anymore, friends. We need to wake up and realise that the church is no longer at the centre of our society. We are finding ourselves more and more and more on the fringe of our society. If you don't believe that, that same-sex marriage legislation would have gone the other way last year had we still been in the centre of our society. We are not in the centre of our society anymore. We are on the fringe. According to the census... 
information between 1971 and 2011, Christianity has dropped 22%. Since 1971 to 2011, number of people who claim to be Christian have dropped 22%. That figure is masked somewhat because we've had huge immigration during that time and a lot of those immigrants are bringing their faith with them. So that figure could have been a lot worse had the immigrants not bring their faith with them. But even so, 22% of drop in Christianity since 1971 to 2011. 48% drop in church attendance. And those who are claiming no religion on our census has increased 269% in that time. It's a concerning trend, friends. It's a really concerning trend. And there is no signs of it ending. Each time the census comes out, the picture gets worse and worse and worse for us as a church. And for most of us, anyway, in the church, we're simply sticking our heads in the sand and we're hoping that it all goes away. It's not going away. It's not going away. Well, this morning, well, tonight, we want to take another look at a very familiar passage, a passage that I'm sure is familiar to you, the prodigal son or the two sons, uh, which I've always found strange that it was called the prodigal son or the two sons, because I, I believe that this passage is more about the father than it is about his two sons. But more importantly, it's about the deep, extravagant, unexplainable love of our Heavenly Father. It's a story that perhaps more than any shows us how acutely our Heavenly Father loves us, how, what lengths he would go to to be reconciled to us. This story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you or your smartphone, uh, you may wish to turn up to Luke chapter 15. And the story begins in verse 11 with a very selfish son asking his father for his half of the inheritance. Now, I don't know how many parents we have here tonight, but uh, I don't know how you would feel about this. Uh, But if one of my children came to me asking for half their inheritance before I died, I'd feel like I'd failed as a parent. It's a very selfish request. Now, I don't, I don't want to bag out any young people who have done that here tonight. I appreciate uh, it's hard, isn't it? It's really, really hard. It's crazy times. How, how on earth are you meant to uh, buy a house in, in this day and age? And some people might say, well, move to Wollongong. But it's not much cheaper here in Wollongong than it is in Sydney. How are you meant to do that? And yet here we have uh, this child here in first century who asks for half of the inheritance, his half the inheritance. It's a selfish act. It's even more selfish than a child asking for his inheritance today because you need to understand the context, the, the first century Israel, Israeli context, the Jewish context of the first century to understand how selfish this request was. You see, their, their whole lives were built on community, on family, on kinship. They had some weird laws, laws that you and I would find weird. Like if your brother died and he had no kids, you were to give his wife children so that they could look after her in their old age. That's just weird and perverse to us, but that's how their society was structured. 
It was all structured on community, on family, on kinship. There was no social security. There was no old aid pension. You had to rely on your family. There was no public health. If you needed to be looked after, it was a family that looked after you. That's why the orphans and the widows in the New Testament were so desperate, because they had no family, and family was everything. Your family looked after you. What would happen is your parents would raise you as children and when you came of age, you would start working the family farm with your parents and then as they got older, you would look after them in their old age. In fact, in many parts of the world, that still exists today, that, that sort of kinship and family. We, it's foreign to us, but it's not foreign to many people. And so this son, by asking for his half of the inheritance, is not only squandering his future, he's actually putting in jeopardy his brother's future and his parents' future. It's a selfish, self-absorbed act. And yet, friends, it's nothing new. It's actually the essence of our sin, isn't it? that we are selfish and self-absorbed. Go back to the very beginning of time and Adam and Eve and God creates this beautiful garden for Adam and Eve and places Adam and Eve in the garden. And then what do Adam and Eve say? Thanks, Lord, we'll take it from here. We know best. They get selfish. Fast forward 2,000 years from when Jesus was alive and walking this earth and if you want to know if we're selfish or not, just go join one of the many social media uh, pages that you can go join. Go join Facebook or Instagram or whatever takes your fancy and you'll see how your friends have better coffee than you do, eat better meals than you do, have better friends than you, go on better trips than you. It's so selfish and so self-absorbed. There's nothing new in it. It's the essence of our sin. And yet this guy here, this younger son, is being immensely selfish. He's not only putting his future at stake, he's actually putting the future of his whole family at stake. Last year I read this article uh, from, on the Domain website, uh, which was titled, Families Being Torn Apart with General Wise Relying on Inheritance Cash to Buy a Home. Let me just read the first two paragraphs of this article to you. I'll make no judgment, by the way. As you can tell, I'm not a Gen Y, uh, so I make no judgment. I appreciate how hard it is uh, to actually buy a home and, and to, to actually start a family and all the, that sort of things that would have been um, a given in the past in Australia. But this is what the article says. Families have been torn apart more, as more than one in four Gen Y Australians today admit they are banking on the inheritance cash to be able to afford to buy homes in expensive markets. This has led to children asking their parents to give us the money as an early inheritance, sometimes creating tensions that end up seeing them cut out of wills completely or their share slashed. After parents' death, they're also increasingly challenging siblings and other family members for a bigger slice of the pie. It's, about, it's a sad indictment in our society, isn't it, friends, that, that it's come to a point where young people have to ask their parents prematurely for inheritance, and it actually splits families apart, as I can imagine why it would. You know, you'd be pretty cheesed off as a parent if your kid wants you dead so they can get the money to, to buy their first home. Uh, admittedly, Gen Ys, you're probably waiting more longer than any generation previously for your parents to die. We're living longer and longer these days, and, and house markets is hard, but, you know, it, it does split families apart. And as bad as it seems today for someone to do that, it was a lot worse in the first century. 
because his parents, this selfish son's parents, would have been relying on him to look after them in their old age. He's actually putting his whole family uh, future in jeopardy. It's a very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed request. Well, in stark contrast to this selfish, self-absorbed son, we get this picture of this beautiful father's deep and generous love. In verses 13 to 14, we read that the son squanders his whole inheritance. And then a great famine hits the land and suddenly he has to find work. So he gives himself over and tends to some pigs. And he's so desperate that he's jealous of what the pigs are eating. And then the Bible has this interesting phrase, right? It says he comes to his senses. He realises that the servants of his father, who has many, eat better than he does. And so he's going to pack up his stuff. He's going to go home and he's going to throw himself at the mercy of his father. He's going to say to his father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I know I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Please take me on as a servant. And we read in verse 20, while he is some distance away, the father sees his son and runs to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him. And the son starts off his, his speech, doesn't he? Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. I'm, and the father won't hear it. The father says, bring my son your best coat. Bring him a ring. Bring him sandals. Go and kill the fatted calf. We've got to celebrate. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he is found. You know, I preached this sermon in another church, West Ride in Sydney. And in that church in West Ride, after the service, this uh, Iraqi refugee who was new to our country just had clearly been crying. And I, I said, what, what moved you so much? And she said, the reaction of the father when the son came home. She said, you, you've got to understand Middle Eastern culture. That would never happen. A father would never express in private, let alone in public, his love for his children in that way. It just moved me because I realised how much God loves me. And that's the picture we have here, friends. Love of the Father comes and runs out and greets his son and restores his son and his son is clothed and given a ring and the fatted calf is killed and they celebrate. They celebrate because his son was lost. But now he is found. He was dead, but now he was alive. The extravagant, generous love of the father. Last year there was a story on 60 Minutes of a parent's unconditional love. Nathan Brooks, who has his back turned to us in that photograph from Moses Lakes, Washington, was 14 years old when he shot his parents. Uh, his parents were concerned that one of the, the cleaners may have been stealing stuff from their house, so they had CCTV cameras installed in their homes, which captured everything that Nathan did that night. And Nathan uh, shot his parents with the intention of killing them. They both survived, but he shot his parents because his parents wouldn't let him go to a basketball tournament. You know, Nathan got a lengthy, imprison, sent, uh, lengthy prison sentence but his parents are sticking by him and they're loving him and they're standing up for their son and they're looking after his son. Just incredible, incredible love of parents, you know. And from one perspective, I look at that story and go, how on earth 
Mr. and Mrs. Brooks, can you do that? How can you love your son that way? He tried to kill you. But from another perspective, as a father, I totally understand because I'm not sure there's anything my kids could do that would ever make me stop loving them. Love of a father, the generous, deep love of the father. In the story of the prodigal son, we see this beautiful picture of the father's love. He's longing for his son to return. Such deep devotion to his children that even when his youngest child betrays him and puts his future at risk when he returns home, he's welcomed extravagant, unexplainable love, the generous love of the father. And finally, at the end of the story, we get this picture of the angry brother. The angry brother. In verse 25, the older brother returns from the field after another hard day in the, in the field. He, he's worked hard. He hasn't shirked his responsibilities, nor has he, he abandoned his family or his parents. He's been the good son the whole time. And he comes back from the field and he hears the celebration. So he pulls one of his servants aside and says, what's going on? And his servant says, your father, he's celebrating. He's killed the fatted calf because your brother has returned. Well, this makes the son quite angry. And so the father goes out to him and says, son, you have been faithful the whole time. And this phrase gets me every time. All I have is yours. All I have is yours. That phrase gets me every time. It's just a reminder that all we have, friends, all we have has been given us to us by God the Father. All I have is yours. He says, I know your brother has betrayed us, but he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he was found. And I'm just so happy that he's back, that I need to celebrate. And he says, come inside and celebrate with us too. Luke doesn't actually resolve the story for us. We actually don't know whether the brother goes inside or not, but I find this really this, this brother intriguing. I find the brother intriguing because for me, in this story, he is the only rational one in this story. Let's be honest. That the youngest son isn't rational. He's just blown not only his future, he's put the jeopardy of his whole family's future at stake. It's just stupidity. And then the father, when he sees the son, welcomes him back and says, come, you are my son again, restores him, makes him a part of the family too. For me, friends, it's the older brother that's the only rational one in this story. Of course, he would be cheesed off and angry. Why on earth would the father accept a son back that he's betrayed? But that's the whole point of the story, isn't it, friends? The whole point of the story is that God's love isn't rational. Thank goodness for me. Thank goodness for you that God's love isn't rational. If God's love was rational, none of us would have a hope. None of us deserve the love of God. But God's love isn't rational. God the Father's love is generous and deep and wonderful. God accepts us back and restores us and makes us part of his family again. That's the point of this passage. God's love isn't rational. It's extravagant. It's beyond our understanding and our comprehension. You know, the world can ignore us. 
the world can attempt to tear down our truth. But the one thing the world cannot ignore is the extravagant love of the Father. They can't ignore that. 20 years ago, Rodney Stark, a Christian sociologist and historian, wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity. Up until that point, the prevailing view had been that the Roman Empire had become Christian when uh, Emperor, Emperor Constantine had come to power. Emperor Constantine had seen this vision of this uh, flaming sword and, and uh, believed it was from uh, Christ and he painted the, 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 symbol, the Greek symbol for Christ on all his shields of all his soldiers and they went into battle and they won and he devoted himself to Christ. But people like Rodney Stark are turning that history upside down now. Rodney Stark believes that the Roman Empire was already Christian before Constantine came to power. Constantine was just a very astute political uh, person saw what was happening in the empire, saw that the empire had already turned to Christianity and decided just to get on to the winner. You see, um, Rodney did some research as a sociologist and a historian about what was happening in those first three centuries, how this Jewish sect, because that's all that Christianity was at the very beginning, a Jewish sect in this backwater country of Israel, how that within three centuries had transformed the entire known world and he realized it was because the early church showed this extravagant generous love of the father to those who desperately need it when plagues would hit cities in roman the roman uh, empire people would scatter healthy people would take off and leave those cities they did not want to get sick except for the church the church would stay and help those who were sick. In the Roman Empire, uh, boys were much more precious and valuable to families than girls, and so many families would abandon their baby daughters out on the streets. Who would look after those daughters? The early church. The widows, the orphans. It was the early church that showed God's extravagant love. And by showing God's extravagant love, the message of God's grace and salvation and compassion and transformation and acceptance, his generous love spread throughout all the lands. And within three centuries, perhaps the greatest empire in the history of the world had become Christian. Jesus says in John 13, 34 to 35, I'm sure you're familiar with these verses, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he gives this great promise at the end of that, doesn't he? What happens if we love one another? By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, we might be finding ourselves more and more on the fringe of our society. Uh, We shouldn't be threatened by that. We should see that as an opportunity. An opportunity to show God's extravagant, generous love again. One of the ways you can do that is through uh, helping us at Baptist World Aid show that love to communities overseas that are marginalised and impoverished. One of the ways of that is a child sponsorship program. Stories like that you saw tonight of Simmer. 
Stories where we go to the most marginalised people in this world and through our Christian partners, we show God's love. Not only would they be unshackled uh, through their physical poverty, but they'd be unshackled by their spiritual poverty as, from their spiritual poverty as well. We, we're seeing that everywhere. We're seeing the church grow. In every area we are working in, the church is growing as people come to experience the love of the Father and hear the good news about Jesus. Just $48 a month, or if you're a student, just $24 a month. And you can help us be a part of an incredible story like Simmer. Because, you know, the world might t seek to tear us down. But what it can't do is deny the love of the Father. What it can't deny is the love of his church. You know, friends, our world is in rapid change. It's in rapid change. So much so that it's not only the typewriter or the computer mouse uh, that will be obsolete in the future. I heard a futurist say during the week that the mobile phone within a few decades will be obsolete. That will begin computer chips in our hands. Let, let me tell you, uh, in the 70s, growing up in, in Baptist churches, that used to freak us out, you know, like that was the sign of the devil. That was definitely that. Uh, I, I don't want to make any judgment on that, you know. I, I've got too much of a Baptist in me. <laughs> Maybe that is the sign of the devil. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but uh, people are telling me that the phone, this thing that we, we are so reliant on right now, right, they tell me that this is going to be obsolete within a decade or two that your children will not know what an iPhone is, will not know what a mobile phone is. How our community views our world has shifted dramatically as well. We're no longer the centre of our community, friends. We need to wake up and realise that. We're no longer the community's social uh, moral compass. They've abandoned us. They're going their own way now. But friends, let's be honest with ourselves. Firstly, we were never going to legislate people back into church. It, didn't matter what, it doesn't matter what laws we change. We will not legislate people back into the church. What will bring people back into the church is a realisation of how much God actually loves them. That God loves you. That God loves me that God loves us so much that he would send his son into this world, that his son would die on a cross for us, that his son would be raised from the dead, that you and I can be restored, that we can be a part of his family again, that selfish son can be a part of his family again. And not only can we be a part of his family again, he invites us to share that love with others as well. It's that love that can't be denied. Friends, people might try to tear down our truth. Well, let them have a go, I say. What they can't tear down, what is undeniable is the love of the Father. And what is undeniable is when we become agents of that love, then people will see God in fresh and new ways. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. Lord God, our, our world is changing rapidly and, and for some, Lord God, that's very scary. Lord, it makes us disorientated. Lord, once upon a time, 
your church was the centre of Western society and it's clearly not anymore. We see year after year it's in decline. We see year after year new legislation that takes our community, our world further away from you. And yet, Lord God, if we are honest with ourselves, we know all of us, we all know, Lord God, that we are selfish to our core, that we are self-absorbed, Lord, that we are sinful. And yet, Lord, you who were the one who created all things, choose to accept us back into your family. Choose to love us. Choose to send your son Jesus into the world to die for us, that we might be restored, that we might be reconciled. Oh Lord, what generous love, unexplainable love, extravagant love. Lord, as your followers, as your church, I pray that we might be agents of that love. Jesus, as you have asked us to do in John chapter 13, may we love one another as you have first loved us. And may that promise be true as we do that, Lord Jesus. May the world know that we are your disciples because of the love that we have for one another. Lord, help us to understand our part in your kingdom's work. Help us to comprehend how we can share your love with others, that they too might come to experience the great and deep love that you have shown to us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.